On December 31st, 1999, people around the world shared mixed emotions, concern that something as simple as Y2K would cause the world to fall apart, and yet hope that a new millennium would bring a peace and prosperity. Uh, when the clock struck midnight and the world didn't fall apart, uh, it seemed as if everyone breathed a sigh of relief. Meanwhile, in uh, downtown Manhattan, uh, five friends couldn't believe their luck as they moved into a large Manhattan sublet with a beautiful view of the World Trade Center, perhaps the best view in the city. Uh, so begins Deborah Eisenberg's Twilight of the Superheroes. It is uh, the title story of a collection of uh, such stories that uh, take a rather ironic look at life post-millennium. And uh, Deborah Eisenberg is the author of uh, three short story collections, uh, Transactions in a Foreign Currency, Under the 82nd Airborne, and All Around Atlantis. Her work, The Stories So Far of Deborah Eisenberg, published in 1997, combines the author's two earliest collections. Uh, she's also the author of a play, a Pastoral, uh, which was produced by Second Stage in New York in 1982. She's written for The New Yorker, Bomb, The Yale Review, and uh, she's the recipient of so many awards, including a, a Guggenheim Fellowship. And uh, Deborah Eisenberg is professor of creative writing at the University of Virginia, but most importantly, she joins us here on KUCI. Good morning, Deborah. Hi, Jared. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us this morning. As uh, I've had a chance to tell you, uh, I'm a bit starstruck. I think your writing is just absolutely amazing. Well, I couldn't be happier, and thanks for having me on the show. Oh, I'm I'm thrilled. Uh, if you can, let's let's begin with the title, Twilight of the Superheroes. Uh, maybe I'm putting you on the spot, but to what does that refer? Well, of course, um, in a way, it just it only refers uh, to the Wagner uh, opera cycle called Twilight of the Gods. I mean, that's the title's a bit of a joke, but um, uh, more broadly, it really refers, I would say, to uh, the idea on the one hand, of um, empire here in the U.S. Uh, being challenged at this point in our history. Uh, and, and also, uh, then we get into a large sort of murky area that I'm very interested in of um, what we in this country are to ourselves, which I think is a very unusual thing. But I think that uh, something that's also being challenged at this period in our history is our view of us as sort of childlike, um, sweet, powerful people. Um, so it, the title was just... Uh, uh, I was very, very, very pleased with it, I have to admit, uh, because I think it does, uh, uh, it enfolds all of those ideas and sort of allows you to um, start off uh, by thinking about um, a number of things. Well, yeah, it's it's such a an interesting title because, you know, we, we try to think that Superman will never age. That Superman, you know, as as Clark Kent, as this this uh, you know young, good-looking, you know, physically fit, 
uh, individual will never age. And, and similarly with, with Batman and, you know, we seem to be, you know, there seems to be a resurgence of um, popularity in superheroes, which, you know, might be a topic for a whole nother program. Why, when a country seems to be somewhat weak at the knees, we've got, you know, a resurgence in, in the mythology of, of superheroes as if one person or, or entity can save everything. But that being said, we tend to think that superheroes are indestructible and yet the twilight of the superheroes suggests that that might change. Exactly, exactly. And the idea that we um, have of ourselves, you know, which is certainly my generation, which is, believe me, way up there, uh, inherited was the sort of heroic and innocent figure from World War II. Sure. Um, could you set, the, I kind of gave a little bit of it in the introduction, but could you set the... Um, the, the context or the, the setting of the title short story? Uh, I can try. There are two... It, it's really the story of two groups of people. Um, on, it's one night, let's say, uh, that takes place uh, in Manhattan in, oh, 2003, four, five, two... Um, and there are two groups of people, both uh, sort of thinking their own thoughts, which include thoughts of each other. Uh, there is um, a man who's known as Uncle Lucian, uh, who has a very swanky art gallery uptown, uh, and he's alone thinking about his... Um, uh, former, his, his deceased wife, whom he was very much in love with, and uh, all kinds of other things. And way downtown is his nephew, uh, Nathaniel, and Nathaniel's friends, in this very, very fancy sublet that Lucien arranged for them. And uh, they're preparing to uh, to leave that sublet. And so they're, they're uh, Nathaniel is kind of thinking his thoughts on that night, uh, preparing to leave. And uh, a lot of those thoughts revolve um, around uh, it, what they've experienced since September 11th. Uh, uh, and they were actually at home on their terrace, sort of uh, looking right out at the World Trade Center as it uh, uh, exploded. There, there seems to be so, so much iron. I don't know if irony is the right word, but one, one reads Twilight of the Superheroes, and he, you know everybody breathing a sigh of relief that you know the world didn't come crashing down with Y2K, and gee, everything is okay, and the, the superhero is, you know, is is still strong. He wasn't, you know, crippled by the kryptonite of computers, if you will. Right. And one reads this and just gets a sense of, even though, as you, as you point out, it's, it's really kind of a flashback. It takes place post-9-11, yeah. but they're reflecting back. One reads this and can't help but, you know, want to jump into the pages and tell all these people, you know, how could you have been so incredibly naive? How could you have been so... And, and then one hits page uh, 7 and 8, I think it is, or 5 and 7, where you, you talk about the frog boil. Now, I've got to tell you, I was driving home last night listening to, to NPR, and uh, they were talking about Al Gore's new 
movie you may know about with yeah. um you know, and they said that the highlight of of the movie is a a, a, a little caricature a cartoon about a frog boil could you oh my God. and i i thought wow this is just kind of kind of eerily coincidental could you just explain for our listeners the the old i don't know if it's a wives tale or just the the, 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 the truth of it or what have you what is yeah, what is the frog boil i mean boil? i think it's you know uh, some actual horrible um known fact uh which is that if you um uh if you, you're so sadistically inclined that you're willing to um, uh, drop a frog into boiling water, it's going to jump out. But if you uh, put it in cold water, a pot of cold water, and turn the pot on to boil, it'll just stay in and get boiled. So the idea being that unless the rug is just immediately pulled out from under us, we're not going to notice all of the changes that are taking place around us until it's too late? Well, I suppose that that is the general idea. I mean, one thing that um, interests me a lot is how much information uh, is available to us and has always been available to us. Um, uh, you know, it's one of the wonderful things about this country. Well, that you know, that's a highly inflected statement, but. Um, uh, we we really do have the information about uh, or are able easily to get the information or with little difficulty to get the information about um, what what we do in the world uh, and what we do in our own country. Um, but uh, for the very large middle class in this country, it's as if that information were unavailable, as if it didn't exist, or even for people for whom it's very, very vivid, uh, there's a sense that really there's nothing we can do to um, address some of the wrongs. It's a very odd, I, I would say, a, a, an almost unique situation, I think, for peoples of the world to be so powerful as um, a political entity and so powerless as individuals or feel so powerless as individuals and feel so disconnected to uh, the outcome of one's own actions. I want to remind listeners they're in tune to KUCI in Irvine, 88.9 FM, KUCI.org, broadcasting from the University of California in Irvine. We are speaking with Deborah Eisenberg. She is, well, I, now I should ask, are we speaking with or are we speaking to? Uh, how can I tell? I don't know. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I, lo I love those little, uh, y your book is filled with those little um, oh, yes. <laughs> syntax uh, arguments, and I, I, I found myself. I thought last night I better better be careful what I say. But oh, uh, that's so funny. But uh, uh, the book is uh, Twilight of the Superheroes. Well, let's explore that that idea a bit. You know, this idea of whether it's information overload or the idea that we in the middle class just you know don't seem to care or or don't have the time to care about everything going on around us. 
it seems that uh, I still have a couple left uh, to read in uh, in the collection, but it seems that there is this theme of, of the information overload, and those who really do pay attention to specifics um, are maybe deemed crazy or eccentric or just flat out loony. And I think, you know, maybe perhaps the one that jumps out the most is the, the story uh, Auto, I think is... Uh, which uh, some other better auto where there's a, a character who's so in tune to things that she's thought to be insane. Could you comment on that a bit? Well, I think she actually is insane. Um, well, who, um, would, who wouldn't be given, yeah. you know, the state of, of the world? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, she is a very unfortunate, very, very, very brilliant. Um, and... Um, very unfortunate uh, character who uh, appears to have become schizophrenic uh, sometime probably in her early 20s. Um, but yes, yeah, she's uh, uh, very uh, gifted in the natural sciences, very I, sensitive. I, I, and I, there's a, a line in uh, on page 76 where she she's being arrested for for being at a library, which I find quite ironic given uh, so much controversy over, you know, the Patriot Act and so many different things. But um, she uh, she's being arrested because they assume she's homeless. And uh, I think her brother, who's the, I guess, the, the protagonist, if you will, Otto, asks if it's a crime to be confused. And uh, that's just such an interesting idea. It's as if we're all supposed to just go with the flow and not be disoriented or confused or not understand how how war could bring peace or how tax relief could somehow improve a deficit or or, <laughs> or, 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 or what have you but uh, you know yes we're, we're really trained to um, to be very very unquestioning uh, I mean we're trained and we're also bought off. I mean, we're, we're an extremely, in my opinion, highly paid army uh, in the service of, uh, well, a kind of ruthless global corporate capitalism. It's, it's real interesting. And the, the other, uh, perhaps the other one where there seems to be, and I couldn't quite get this, but, you know, that's, that's just me. Sometimes it's, you know, style over substance. But, uh, you recommended uh, reading uh, that I read before the interview, uh, Revenge of the Dinosaurs. Yeah. And um, the, it seems that the, the, the background is there's, uh, there's a, a grandmother, I believe it is, or a great aunt. A grandmother, A yeah. grandmother who uh, has suffered a stroke, and she seems to have been you know, a matri the matriarch of, of this family. And uh, people, and, and again, it's kind of following in perhaps in the theme of, of the Twilight of a Superhero, this this strong, wonderful kind of matriarch is now, you know, her, her best days have gone by and everyone's just around trying to figure out, you know, if they could salvage her, what they're supposed to do about her situation. And she's just sitting there almost catatonic watching a television. And I found that juxtaposition quite, you know, quite interesting. I, and in, if I could maybe reveal something personal, when I was speaking with you, uh, about you, you mentioned you don't have a television. So right. could you talk about, you know, to what extent um, d 
does your personal life make it into your writing and vice versa? Um, well, my personal life really doesn't much make it into my writing. Uh, or your political life. Well, it it's impossible to keep it out. I mean, I I um, I mean, what you know, I write fiction, so <coughs> excuse me. Um, so really, what what is fiction? I mean, what makes it? It's just what's the substance of your mind, your inclinations of the hour, your uh, your feelings, your um, everything that's kind of loading up your mind, both conscious and unconscious. And so um, it, it uh, you know, I, I really consider myself a very apolitical person. I'm not, I'm not interested in politics. I don't like following the specifics, but the world that uh, we're living in at this moment is so politicized that even I feel our most private feelings uh, have been uh, sort of tinctured by uh, uh, public events. Um, and, uh, and of course, all fiction is, is political in, in the sense that, uh, uh, you know, it's about relationships between people, even if there's only, you know, even if you only meet one character. Sure. Um, well, let's let's look at that for a minute because we, you know, when we spoke uh, last week, I had you know mentioned that, uh, you know, on September 11th, I was uh, I was well, I had graduated from grad school, but was still living back east. And uh, as I was watching the 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 towers collapse, an individual standing next to me on the street said, you know, whatever country is responsible for this, you know, we need to bomb the hell out of. And I thought, you know. The anger in his voice, I'm sure, was uh, on par with the the anger in the the hearts and minds of those who had caused the buildings to crumble. And I I I couldn't believe that as the buildings were falling, there was already this rush to war. And you had pointed out a couple minutes ago that you know our most deep personal emotions have become completely politicized, and that's how I felt being in 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 Manhattan at the time that I couldn't mourn because I was too busy preparing for, you know, God knows what the administration, you know, and it, it wasn't even the administration, it was Congress, it was everybody, uh, was going to do. And it seems that perhaps you turned to writing as, uh, as a means of dealing with those emotions. What caused, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but what was the, what motivated you to write uh, these collections of stories? And, and do any of them predate September 11th? Uh, the stories in that collection, two of them predate September 11th. Um, one is Some Other Better Auto, and the other is Like It or Not. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, we, it, it's not, it's not as if, uh, it's not as if things became, the world became a different world, you know, on one day. It, it's just that, uh, 
certain elements of it um, became kind of dominant, but uh, there were no new elements really born into the world. Um, uh, and so, again, it's not as if information was unavailable. So I think this is a long way around to say that I think that there that even those two stories um, uh, are kind of very integrated into the collection. Was writing uh, the collection of stories uh, a means of, of healing? Um, oh, if only. <laughs> if only. Um, no, writing is just what I, it's what I do um, or fail to do. <clears throat> and... Um, uh, it, uh, I mean, I, I actually had no desire to write about uh, those events, but they were the events in my mind. And it's true that I think for writers, if, if you're not writing, you do really feel like a backed-up drain. Uh, I go through long periods these days uh, without writing, but it's not a pleasant feeling. And um, and I I think you know I wasn't I wasn't motivated to uh, write that particular the title story in order to sort of resolve my feelings, but in a way, on the contrary, to um, to catch them on the fly, I, I actually was keeping notes really from the first day, uh, but with no intention, you know, just for my own sake, just to remember what my um, mental experience was uh, as it went on. I, I, I've always been sort of a period that, you know, there are various sort of critical moments of history uh, that interest me a great deal, of course. I mean, like everybody else, I'm very interested in Nazi Germany. We have a lot of information about it. Uh, it's extremely peculiar. Uh, there are loads of records available to us and analytical writing available to us. And one thing that isn't available to us, or it's very hard to find, I, I've sort of failed, is fiction that, I mean, well, again, I'm sorry, let me interrupt myself with the tangent, in the midst of my tangent here. Uh, I think that the purpose of fiction is not to make things up, but to kind of locate experience. Um, what does something really feel like? What is it really like to be a human being? What is it really like to be a human being now, here, then, this human being, that human being? Um, so uh, going back to, let us say, Germany in the late 20s, Germany in the 30s, there is a lot of literature available to us, um, uh, factual.
nature diaries uh, now, which is wonderful, uh, but a lot of factual records. But it is very hard for us to know what ordinary Germans were feeling and experiencing. Uh, well, and I think that that's, I mean, you hit the nail on the head because, you know, I know that when I spoke to you, we were, you know, well, you know, this is a political talk show, if you will, but it's not necessarily political writing. I should point out to listeners that in in the title piece, in fact, I think in, 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 in most of the pieces I read, you never mention September 11th. You never mention the word terrorist. You never mention any, really any of these, you know, politicized terms. It's simply kind of, you know, it's not even implied, but how can one not you know, make references to those things when that's what the reader is probably feeling emotionally. And I think that that's probably the, the greatest strength of these collections of writings. You evoke a mood about what's going on without having to hit the reader over the head with what's going on. Well, I, uh, you know, I wasn't, it, that title story did take me some years to write, actually. Um, but in all of that time, I was not aware frankly, that I hadn't used those terms. But if I think if I found that I had, I would have excised them anyhow, not out of um, artifice or coyness, but, but if you use a term like ground zero, terrorist attack, September 11th, you are um, very much, I mean, as a writer, in danger of sort of tapping into uh, a kind of repository of uh, entrenched attitudes and responses and feelings. Um, I mean, the reader's uh, repository. And as a fiction writer, you're trying to really approach areas of mind that are as close as possible to the inexpressible. And the minute uh, you sort of tap into one of those repositories, you lose everything, all those subtle channels that you've worked so hard to carve out. You know, they're just blasted out by sort of automatic response. We're speaking with Deborah Eisenberg. She is the author of a collection of short stories, Twilight of the Superheroes, and... Uh, Really great collection. We're running a little short on time, so I want to kind of open up the discussion a little bit. Why the short story? What are what are some of the, uh, you know, how did you pick the short story rather than, you know, a novel? Well, I didn't. Um, it just seems to be what I write and, or what I've written so far. I'm not making any claims for the future. There, you know, I, in a way, I sort of try to, stay away from discuss, discussions of genre because I don't really believe uh, that fiction divides itself into genres. But um, I, on the other hand, I do, generally speaking, I think novels like to have great propulsive narratives. Um, and with stories, in a way, it's kind of easier to elude 
the requirements of narrative and uh, let other aspects of uh, of fiction sort of come forward, sort of uh, delicate uh, sort of layerings and probings and so on. And who are uh, some of your current favorite authors? Well, uh, you know, I, I'm really not just decades, but centuries behind in my reading. Um, I, I've just developed this huge appetite for uh, the Chilean writer Roberto Bolaño, who um, uh, uh, lived, I guess, in exile, uh, maybe in Mexico, in Barcelona, maybe? I can't remember. Um, anyhow, phenomenal fiction writer. Uh, um, and, uh, well, there, you know, the list goes on and on. Okay. Um, and now you also teach creative writing, is that? It is a fact. Okay. And, uh, when, uh, you know, aside from write what you know, if there are listeners out there who uh, are interested in maybe experimenting with uh, putting pen to paper or, I guess, fingers to keyboards is probably the new way of putting it, um, what advice do you give? Oh, I have some very good advice, I think, which is that um, as my wonderful, beloved uh said to me as I was starting out writing, everyone writes like a five-legged pig at first. It's extremely difficult. And you have to be very, very, very patient because um, you probably won't be able to just sit down and write something good. Almost nobody is able to. And uh, the fact that it seems that you are no good at all at it doesn't mean anything at all. Uh, you just have to be amazingly patient. That's my first piece of advice. My second piece of advice is that um, almost everything will come out as a cliche, and you just have to keep sort of scrutinizing what you do ruthlessly and uh, keep scraping away at the cliches, trying to get closer to actuality. Which is interesting because, uh, you know, as listeners of this program know, I also teach, I don't teach creative writing, but uh, in the social sciences, I mean, most of our assignments are, you know, term papers or essays or, you know, making some kind of policy statement or thesis. And yet I find myself really troubled by the fact that the, uh, I don't know if it's the method, methodology or just the means by which we educate, you know, with, with the clock ticking on a semester, you know, calendar, we don't really allow for students to go through draft one, draft two, draft three, and, uh, you know, submitting something for a peer review publication, I mean, it could go through, you know, 10, 15 different drafts before you're finally comfortable sending it in, and yet during a semester, Students are lucky if they have a chance to write two or three drafts of a piece of uh, their writing, and it, it's easy for them to get discouraged. Are you able to overcome that? What no, it's a constant. It's a constant problem. Um, uh, you know the, uh, that 
there's so much emphasis placed on generating work. And I, I teach in an MFA program, and the idea is that the students have, you know, a full ostensibly publishable manuscript at the end of two years. Well, for me, that's, uh, you know, I can't. Uh, uh, I would never be able to write a full publishable manuscript in two years, and I don't see why uh, somebody who's just beginning should be able to. And uh, so I'm always a bit at odds with uh, the requirements of whatever program I'm teaching in, because I'm begging for revisions and rewrites uh, rather than new work. Um, but I guess, you know, we all, all of the faculty kind of balances, balances itself out. So it does kind of work out. But there, it's a paradox, and I don't, I'm very, um, I'm very dissatisfied by uh, the fact that students are somehow, I feel, led to believe that they ought to be able to do something good quickly. Yeah, and I mean, it's, I think it's part of our culture as well. It's not just education. I mean, we have TV commercials that say if you drink Gatorade, you could be like Mike, as if Michael right. Jordan didn't spend all of this time practicing and, and so on and so forth. Well, we're just about out of time, but I want to, um, I want to kind of end with uh, Passivity Man, which I was laughing uh, out loud. Uh, who is Passivity Man? Um. You mean in the story? Well, you tell us. Uh, well, uh, in in the story, Passivity Man is a comic book character invented by um, uh, the character in the story I spoke of earlier, Nathaniel. Uh, Passivity Man is his creation. And uh, uh, Passivity Man's uh, uh, superpower, obviously, is passivity. And um, uh, Passivity's man's role up until recently is to sort of protect the abject through a kind of uh, sleepiness and laziness and, um, and uh, uh, he, his arch rival is uh, uh, Captain Corporation. If, if you'll allow me, I'll, uh, I've got the, the page uh, earmarked, or dog-eared, I should oh, say. Oh, good. Uh, it's, uh, Passivity Man is taking a snooze, his standard response to stress when the alarm rings. I'll check it out later, boss, he murmurs. You'll check it out now, please, his girlfriend and superior, the beautiful Princess Prudence, tells him. Just put on those grubby corduroys and get out there. Ah, uh, is it really urgent, he asks. Don't you get it, she says. I've been warning you, episode after episode. And now, from his appliance-rich house on the moon, Captain Corporation has tightened his net of evil around the planet Earth, and he's dragging it out of orbit. The U.S. Congress is selected by pharmaceutical companies. The state of Israel is run by Christian fundamentalists. The folks that haul toxic slugs, manufacture cattle feed, and process burgers... Your sources of news and information are edited by a giant mouse. New York City and Christian fundamentalism are uh, holding a family, are holdings of a family in Kuwait. All of it is owned by Captain Corporation. Passiv uh, Passivity Man rubs his eyes and yawns. Well, gosh, Prue, uh, sure, but what am I supposed to do about it? And uh, it goes on from there. Um, uh, 
you wouldn't mind handing me the rights to create a comic a comic book about passivity <laughs> man that's just that is just brilliant how did you come up with that well you know it really took me a long long time and first uh, for the first couple of years I was working on this, the character was Ambivalence Man. And I kept thinking, something is wrong, something is wrong, something is wrong. And finally I thought, oh, I see, I get it, yeah. Yeah, it, it wouldn't, Ambivalence Man sounds like about half of the Saturday Night Live skits, which which are good, but whether it's, you know, Pat, where you don't know the person's gender, or if it's uh, the ambiguously gay duo, I don't know if you're you're familiar with either no. of those characters, but yeah, no, passivity is, is, is where it's at. And, uh, you've got to, you've got to develop that. Cause that's just, that's just <laughs> too great. The book is titled Twilight of the Superheroes and it is available. Well, how can readers get a hold of it besides, uh, you know, the standards, the, the publisher is, uh, Ferrer, Strauss and Giroux. And that's www.fsgbooks.com. That could be, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I'm looking at it, so I guess it is. <laughs> uh, it should be available in uh, the bookstore, but... I found it at a big chain, but uh, it's certainly uh, available at uh, at your nice local independent bookstore as well. And uh, is the other, is the collection still in print? They're still in, uh, they're still in print. The other books are still in print. Um, <clears throat> I mean, the story so far is still in print, um, and all around Atlantis is still in print, uh, as far as I know. But I don't, I guess you'd have to order them. They're not just sitting on the shelf, of course. Well, we'll have to change that. Oh, good. <laughs> Get it, your people on it. <laughs> definitely. It's uh, Twilight of the Superheroes by Deborah Eisenberg. I definitely have to have you back. This has been such a pleasure getting to know you. I, at the risk of uh, gushing, I'm a, I'm a big fan, so I, uh, I thank you for being with us this morning. Oh, thank you so much, Jared. And good luck to you. Thanks, you too.